Father God, we praise you, our glorious God, for the great things that you've done. Lord, we pray now that we would marvel, that we would grow in wonder at what you have done in Christ to atone for our sin. Lord, we're so grateful that he was delivered up according to your definite plan and foreknowledge to be crucified and killed at the hands of lawless men. Lord, we praise you that this was your plan from the beginning, that this was the purpose for which he was sent. Lord, we pray that we would see Christ clearly in your word this morning, that we would see that now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. How would you like to be introduced? If someone had only one sentence to give a first impression about you, how would they describe you? If you were at a job interview, maybe you would want to be introduced to the interviewer by having the secretary say, this is Nathan, the realtor, who just sold my house in one week. If you were on a blind date, you'd probably want your friend to introduce you by listing one or two desirable qualities about you. If you were speaking at a conference, you'd probably want everyone there to know why you were qualified to be standing up in front of them. How does John the Baptist choose to introduce Jesus to his crowd? He introduces him by cutting straight to the essence of who he was and why he was there. He doesn't waste time with fluff, with any irrelevant info. He tells the crowd who he is and what he's, came, he's come to do. He says, behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John's just finished a confrontation with reporters from Jerusalem about his own identity. He had to deny that he was the Christ. He isn't the sent one, the anointed one, the Christ. He's the messenger who pre prepares the way for that one. When it comes time to do what John was sent to do, he cuts to the core of Jesus' identity, labeling him as the Lamb. This man who is sent from God, this man who will solve the sin problem of the world, is called a lamb. The author, the apostle John, uses numerous metaphors for Jesus. Already in chapter 1, he's called him the Word, the Light, the Life. But at his first public appearance, Jesus is called a lamb. And that title's particularly appropriate for his public ministry. Throughout his public ministry, people kept asking and wondering who this man was. And people still ask today, who is Jesus? That's why the book at the back of the room exists. The book that we're using evangelistically this Easter season. People are still asking, who is Jesus? Two weeks ago, we saw that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God. Last week, we heard that He Himself is God. He's the great I Am. Well, one aspect of His identity that's absolutely crucial 
is the fact that he is the lamb. No, he's, he's not a physical lamb with wool and maybe little horns. He's all God. He's all man. But the label lamb is appropriate, especially in the time when Jesus and John were alive and when Jesus came. What would the crowd have thought when John pointed to this man and called him the Lamb of God? They would have thought of all the lambs that were being offered daily as sacrifices. They would have thought of all the biblical imagery, all the types and stories of lambs from the Old Testament. And they would have had a very different picture of this man than a small, foolish young animal standing in a field bleating. Somehow, maybe in a way that John and his disciples didn't even fully realize yet, John was pointing everyone to the fact that Jesus came to die as a sacrifice. John was born to point to Jesus, and Jesus was born to die, to die as a sacrifice. That is the reason that Jesus came into this world. That's what he himself said. He said he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He said he must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. From the beginning to the end of Jesus' public ministry, he was clear himself about what he was called to do, and he was clear to others about what his mission was. Jesus was sent into the world to atone for the sins of the world, to remove sin and restore fellowship with God, to restore the fellowship between God and man, and to do so by giving himself as a sacrifice. And by identifying him as a lamb from the start of his ministry, John gives the crowd, and us too, a rich picture, drawing on numerous Old Testament passages to help us answer the question, who is Jesus? Who is this Lamb of God? So this morning we're going to be looking at six different passages that tell us who this Lamb of God is. We're going to look at six passages, five from the Old and one from the New Testament, on who this Lamb of God is is. The hope is that each passage will help us add depth and meaning to this simple title that John gives Jesus. With each layer that's added, I pray we'll grow in reverence and love for our God, for our Savior, for the Lamb who was slain to take away our sin. So first, the first passage we'll look at is in the garden, and there we'll see that the Lamb of God reveals God's love. So turn to Genesis chapter 3, to Genesis chapter 3, and we'll see how the Lamb reveals God's love. The setting's the garden where Adam and Eve enjoy fellowship with God, dwelling with the holy God in a sinless state. But that fellowship is quickly broken when they sin by eating from the one forbidden tree. God has promised previously in chapter 2 that the day that they eat of that tree, you shall surely die. Realizing what they've done, 
Adam and Eve hide from God and attempt to cover themselves with leaves. How does God respond to this sinful rebellion and foolish attempt to cover themselves? Not with instant death, but by the death of another. God slays an animal and covers them himself with that animal's skin. See God's great love in this. The wages of sin is death. God's righteous law has been broken. His holiness has been violated. So death comes, but it's not the death of the one who sinned, not instantly at least. Death that day came to another, to an innocent animal, maybe a lamb, so that Adam and Eve might live on, so that they might have children, so that from Eve might come the one who will undo her sin. In Christ, God has sacrificed his own son to cover our sin. Our sin against a holy God, sin that separates us, that absolutely ruins the relationship that Adam and Eve once enjoyed with the holy God. That sin has been covered by the death, not of an animal, but by God's own son. The sending of this offspring of Eve, the Son of God incarnate, is God's ultimate act of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. To rightly understand love, to rightly understand sin and human nature, to rightly understand who Jesus the Lamb is, we have to start here in the garden. If you get the starting point wrong and you, you're following a treasure map, if you go 10 paces, turn left, and five more paces, you won't be anywhere close to where you need to be if you're not starting from the right point. Who Jesus is will mean nothing to us if we don't start here. If we aren't image bearers who have sinned against a holy God, the whole message of Christianity sounds absurd. The idea of a sacrifice to redeem us from sin makes no sense if we have no need of redemption. If sin's just a figment of our imagination, if guilt's just a manifestation of cultural norms, we have to get Genesis 1 through 3 right if we want to get anything else right. So if Christianity doesn't make any sense to you, it may very well be because the creation, fall, and promise of redemption in Genesis 1 through 3 sounds more like a fairy tale than history. Love is one concept that our society seems particularly confused about today. Love is love, they say. You'll see those signs on many houses right around this church. But what are valid forms of love? What are the limits of love? Is everything that everyone calls love actually loving? If you aren't sure how you would define love, if you aren't sure what it looks like to love a confused child or adult who doesn't know what gender they are, if you aren't sure what it looks like to lovingly organize a society of people who will inevitably sin against one another, and if you aren't sure that you've ever experienced love yourself, look at God's love here in Genesis. Look at his continued love for you and your life, even after all the mistakes you've made. 
and look chiefly at his love revealed in the Lamb, in Jesus, who he sent to die for sinners like you. A few chapters later in Genesis, in Genesis 22, we see another lamb. So turn there with me to Genesis 22. The sacrifice in Genesis 3 shows God's love. The lamb in Genesis 22 gives us a pattern of substitution. The lamb in Genesis 22 gives us a pattern of substitution. In this chapter, Abraham is called by God to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, the son through whom God's already promised to make a mighty nation of his descendants. Abraham in faith marches on, preparing to sacrifice his son. He lays the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's back and makes him carry that himself to the place where he'll be slain. When Isaac notices that all the elements of, sacri of sacrifice are there except for the animal, he asks where the lamb is. Abraham replies by saying, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And God does. Moments before Abraham brings down his knife to take the life of his own son, the angel of the Lord stops him. Look at 22:13. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. God provides a substitute for Abraham's son, a male lamb, a ram, caught with thorns around his head to die in his place. God's graciously provided a substitute he provided a substitute for Abraham, and he provides one for us, too. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but God has provided a substitute. He sent his son to die in our place. He didn't spare him, but sacrificed him. He carried the wooden cross up to his death and bore punishment in our place. God's graciously provided a substitute. It can be all too easy for us to view God as stingy, as if he withholds things from us. If only I had this, my life would be so much easier. If only I didn't get hurt during my junior season, my life would be so different. If only I had a little more time with this loved one. It's so easy for us to think in these ways. But God is not stingy. God blesses us richly. And we see the richness of his provision here in giving Christ as a substitute. In Romans 8, at the height of his argument showing God's amazing love for his people, Paul exclaims, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God withholds no good gift from you. He gives you just what is good. From his nature, his loving nature, he has given Christ as our substitute and our savior. And from that same loving nature, he gives us all that he gives us. 
every cause for dissatisfaction, every unmet desire, every disappointment can be viewed by the Christian as for our good. Should this not teach us to be grateful in all things? Can you view your hardship with gratitude? Can you view it as coming from the hand of your loving Father? I can't tell you how encouraging it is to talk to Steve Doppelstein. The way he talks about his recent illness, the way he talks about God's grace to him in it, is an amazing, is an amazing example of God's love and this very attitude that Paul has. Look at God's goodness to you in Christ and trust in his goodness to you in all other things. Who knows what temptations you would have faced if you got that job? Who knows what sin you would have fallen into if you had a little more money? Who knows what despair you'd be crushed under if you had a little less? Carry your blessings and your crosses, as hard as they may be, with gratitude by looking at Christ carrying our cross in our place. For the Lamb in Genesis 22 gives us a pattern of substitution and shows us God's kind provision. The Lamb in the Passover shows us the severity of God's wrath against sin. Turn to Exodus 12 and see God's severe wrath against sin. God takes sin seriously. As we saw in Genesis 2 and 3, the punishment for sin, for rebellion, for breaking God's law is death. And in this fallen world, where all sin and fall short of God's glory, death runs rampant. The tenth plague in the land of Egypt, where the people of Israel were in slavery, is a picture of this, a picture of deaths running rampant in the world. God's tenth and final plague against the Egyptians is that death will sweep through every house and every firstborn will die. But before that plague, God again provides. He provides a substitute for the Israelites. Every house that slaughters a lamb and paints its blood on the doorframe, the Lord will pass over and the firstborn will live. Look at the severity of the punishment for sin. Exodus 12 says that there was not a house in Egypt where a firstborn wasn't dead. See how severe God is with sin, with those who sin against him and those who sin against his people. Christ delivers us from this just but severe punishment of death. We're all under the curse of the law. We all deserve eternal death. But Christ is our Passover lamb. The lambs that were slayed that day in Egypt and the lambs that Israel killed uh, every year in celebration of God's merciful passing over them and delivering them from death and from bondage in Egypt, those lambs were merely pictures of Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 that Christ is our Passover lamb. He's been slain. And if his blood covers us, if we shelter ourselves under his death, we're delivered from death and from the sins also that lead to death. But there's another part of the Passover meal, the unleavened bread, 
Our lives, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, should be free from the sinful leaven of hatred and evil. If Christ is our sacrificial lamb, our lives are the unleavened bread that are to be free from sin. One Puritan, Stephen Charnock, says, As therefore our true Passover, which is the Lord Jesus, hath been sacrificed for us, let us daily celebrate the memory of it in a manner worthy of so great a grace. As therefore the Jews abstain from all leaven in the time of the figure, let us not only abstain from, but purge out all things contrary to God, because for this end Christ was sacrificed for us. As the Passover was a type of Christ, so the unleavened bread was a type of Christians and of their innocence and purity of life. Just a little leaven, just a little yeast causes a whole loaf to rise. Just a little sin, just a little eating of the fruit in the garden, just a little covetousness, a little envy, a little anger is worthy of death. Do you take sin seriously? Do you purge your life of sin the way a surgical team rids an operating room of every germ? A little bacteria in the air or on any surface can make hours of surgery worthless when an infection takes the life of the patient. So a surgical team will wash from their elbows down. They disinfect every instrument in a really hot oven and they circulate the air out of the room continuously. Are you that watchful of sin? Do you see it as severe, as worthy of death, even as dangerous? Just like a little bacteria can create a big infection, small seeds of sin, ignored, left to grow, can lead to ruin. Shine the light of God's word on your heart to expose any worldly loves. Ask those who know you best what sins you may be unaware of. And pray that God would expose sin, bringing it to light and putting it to death by the Spirit who Christ has poured out on us richly to sanctify us. But a question remains. How does another's death help me? How does the death of a man or an animal benefit me in any way? Let's turn to Leviticus 16, to the Day of Atonement, to Yom Kippur, Leviticus 16, where we see that God shows us that our sins can be transferred to another. When John calls Jesus the Lamb, he calls to mind not only the specific reference to lambs who are sacrificed every single day on the altar, but to the whole sacrificial system, which reaches its greatest heights in this day of atonement, where two goats are sacrificed to God. One's killed as a sin offering. Its blood is brought into the Holy of Holies, the only time the high priest enters this place, once per year. On the other goat, the high priest lays his hands on its head, symbolically transferring all the sins, transgressions, and iniquities of the people of Israel onto the goat. Then the goat is carried away into the wilderness. The people's sin is put away. 
But the blood of bulls and goats, as we already saw this morning from the passage in Hebrews, is insufficient. Our sin needs to be transferred, not just to any substitute, but to a worthy substitute. And Christ is our worthy substitute. Christ is our worthy sin bearer. Christ bore the sins, our sins, in his body on the tree, Peter says in 1 Peter 2. Christ, being fully God and fully man, being perfectly human, being perfectly holy, was a suitable substitute. He was a worthy representative for his people. He alone could stand before the Father and present himself in place of his people and pay the debt that we owe because of our sin. When the priest laid his hands on the head of the goat, the sins of the nation were symbolically transferred to the goat. All of the sins of all of the nation. And what was done symbolically to the animal has been done truly in Christ. That means that your sins, Christian, have all been laid on Christ. They've been fully removed. There's no more work to be done. There's no guilt. There's no greater ritual. No penance must be done to take some of those deeper stains away. No further blood must be shed. No ritual prayers need to be offered. No deeper sign or experience must be sought to have fellowship with the holy God. Atonement has been made. Christ has taken the sins of his people onto himself. He's shed his own blood, making a way to the holy place. To look for more signs, to look for a greater or a clearer word from God, to look for further cleansing, is like going up to your wife and asking to provide her commitment to you with a new sign every day. She already has. She's wearing the ring. She's bound herself in covenant to you. To ask repeatedly for more signs is not only redundant, it's insulting. Christian, God has declared you innocent because your debt has been paid in Christ. So what do you do when those feelings of guilt press into your head? What do you do when that event from your past pops into your memory? What do you do when you sin in that same way again? Don't minimize those sins. Don't see them as not sins. Don't make excuses for them. Don't see yourself as merely a victim. But do see Christ as sufficient. Do see God's grace as greater than your sin. Do look to the lamb who was slain. Do look to the cross and see your record of debt nailed there. See the worthiness of the payment and know that your debt, your guilt is gone. Don't live by your guilty feelings. Live by the reality of the cross and line your feelings up with that reality. Fix your eyes on Christ. Behold the Lamb. Why does secular psychology not work? Why can a therapist that doesn't believe the gospel not help you with your anxiety? Why will that secular counselor 
not be able to help you work through your past because they won't rightly address the problem and they can't offer you the only solution. They may be able to, to hide your debt, but they can't pay it off for you. They may hide your credit card bill or write something on it and tell you that it's actually a birthday card. But Christ alone pays your debt. He alone wipes away our guilt and frees you from your feelings of guilt, fear, and alienation of God. Where those professionals do line up with biblical truth, where they rightly point out patterns in this world and in your life, they very well may be helpful. But if they aren't pointing you to Christ, they leave you short of truly helping you. But Christ the Lamb does more than remove our guilt. He also gives us righteousness. He gives us His own, God's very own righteousness. We aren't left as blank slates. We aren't slaves that have been set free, but now stand destitute, poor, penniless, without any direction. We're credited with God's own righteousness. Let's again read the passage that John wrote, read this morning from Isaiah. From Isaiah, we'll start in 52 and read through 53. Hear how the prophet Isaiah describes the Christ, the Lamb of God, and hear what the result of his work is all the way down in verse 11. We'll start in 52, 13, and read through verse 11 of 53. Behold, my servant shall act wisely and shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yet he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living stricken for, our trans, for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. 
Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. By his sacrifice, we are free from sin. By his suffering, we're also counted righteous. Christian, that means that when you are afflicted, you're not suffering for your sins. You stand righteous already. In fact, as Christ, the righteous one, suffered evil for a good purpose, you too, knowing that you're also righteous in him, can know that your suffering is not for punishment, nor is it vain, in vain, but there's actually a good, sanctifying, God-glorifying purpose behind it. If Christ, the righteous lamb, has suffered for good, your suffering too will lead to good. Finally, let's look at our last passage this morning and jump to eternity future, skipping over everything else the New Testament has to say about this lamb, this suffering servant, and find the lamb standing as though slain in Revelation 5. Revelation 5, verses 6 through 10. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the world, the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowl, bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This is what John the Baptist means when he says, that the Lamb takes away the sin of the world. This redemption is not for the Jews only. God's saving work is a worldwide endeavor. People from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will be ransomed. By His death, the Lamb's people, who God has known and loved for eternity, His people have been ransomed rescued from the bondage of sin and death and the curse of the law by submitting himself to suffering, to temptation, to the wrath of his own holy nature, the Son, the Lamb of God, has accomplished redemption for his people and will receive the glad praise of that people. The victory procession will never cease. The lowly in this world, the despised, the afflicted, those who were once bound to their sins, who were under the executioner's axe, 
under the boot of the, the powerful in the world, they are now the very ones who are raised up together with Christ and seated alongside him. If you cannot win, if it seems like everything is going against you, if it seems like you can't get a break from one hardship after another, if you're trapped in the surf with wave after wave breaking on your head, keeping you from catching your breath, in Christ you will have victory. Your head will be lifted up above the waves. You'll be able to breathe in deeply and exhale praise. Take hold of this lamb by faith. Simply trust in him and his finished work. Believe in him and you'll be united to him. Your record of debt will be nailed to that cross. But know that you will be nailed to that cross too. Your old self will be put to death. Your old man with its sinful desires, with its passions, with its disordered loves, you will, with the lamb, be put to death. But the new self will be raised up with Christ. You'll be seated with him in the heavenly places, counted as perfectly righteous. You'll find your love, your desires, being lifted up slowly and painfully at times, still weighed down in this life by the old man, but you will be raised. Every person who's been plunged in the waters of baptism has come up again. And everyone who by faith is united to the Lamb in his death is united to him in his resurrected life as well. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you for this wonderful truth, this promise you've given us in Christ. We thank you for the surety, for the promise that all who trust in him, all who are united to him by faith, all who are covered in his blood will be raised to newness of life with him and will live for eternity with him, praising him for his work. Lord, I pray that you would make us more sure of that each day as we look to your word, as we turn from sin, and as we trust in your promises. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.